Precious Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us the way that we may walk in it. Lord, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us your glorious gospel of Christ, who he is and what he's done. We thank you, Lord, that your word is like a hammer and it breaks the hardest of hearts. Your word is like fire, Lord. It refines. Your word is like a double-edged sword and it cuts to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. And Lord, your word is like pure milk. And we pray that this morning, Lord, that you would feed us with your word. We pray that you would teach us your word, that we would come to you, even as we'll be looking at, Lord, that we would come to you with meek, humble, patient, submissive hearts, ready to listen, receive and obey all that you tell us in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1. I'll be reading from, even though we're looking at verses 19 to 21, I'll be reading from verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits, Of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This is the infallible word of our God. Well, it's a joy to be uh, preaching God's Word to you again. It's been a while since I've been up here, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful privilege, um, and it's wonderful to have Joel um, as the preaching out of preaching to us week in and week out. And so it's a privilege to be here and preach um, while he's gone, and we look forward to uh, when he's back. But this morning we'll be looking at these three verses, James 1, verses 19 to 21. And I want to ask you this question first as we start. What's the relationship between your sin and the Word of God? What's the relationship between your sin and the Word of God? Or another question, what happens when you sin and try to intake the Word of God? What happens when you sin and you try and take in the Word of God? How should you approach the Word of God when you read it? When someone is speaking to you about the Word? When you're sitting under the word as it's taught or preached, how should you approach the word? For how we approach the word is fundamental to everything else because it's how we understand how we are to live for God and honor him and obey him and please him. It's fundamental, even, as, even when we were unbelievers, how we are to hear the word so that we may be saved. We must read and hear the word rightly. And that's what James is getting at this morning. Well, before in the few verses that we've just, uh, I've just read, verses 16 to 18, particularly verse 18, James is speaking that about God as the giver of all spiritual life. And we looked at that last time I preached, if you remember that. And if you don't, you can always go back and listen to it. But God gives his people spiritual life 
by his spirit through the word of truth. So the source of the new life that we have that enables us to believe in Christ Jesus and be saved, and we use the word called regeneration, the source of that new life is God, by the Holy Spirit. And the means by which we're born again so that we can believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, the means is the word of truth. You notice that in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So the word is the instrument by which we are born again. It's the means by which we're born again. But it's not as if we are born again through the word of truth and we go, Oh great, I've had the gospel, that's it. I don't need anything else in the word. I don't even need the gospel now. I'm saved, that's okay, I used it back then. I was born again through the word of truth, but I don't need to listen to it or obey it. And that's what James is getting at in these following verses. In verses 22 and 20 to 27, which we'll be looking at next week, James is getting at the fact that we must not just listen to the Word of God, but obey it. As you heard Anthony pray in his pastoral prayer. We must obey it and put into practice. But we can't put into practice something we don't know. We can't obey commands that we have no idea about. We can't trust in promises that we don't know. We can't be convicted of sins that, the law, that we don't understand from the law of God. And so James in these three verses, verses 19, 20, and 21, is all talking about how we receive the word of God. And that's very important because, yes, we must obey the word of God and not be hypocrites. But to, before we even get to obeying, we must actually know what the word of God says. So as we look through these three verses, the central teaching or doctrine of these three verses is that the word of God must be received with patient, meek submission. The word of God must be received with patient, meek submission. And you'll see that as James brings all these things together. And we're going to see the first see the call to listen and be patient from verses 19, 20 and the first part of verse 21. The call to listen and be patient. And then we're going to see in the second part of verse 21, the call to receive the word with meekness. So have a look with me first at verse 19. And as we go through verse 19 to 21, the call to listen and be patient. Verse 19, if you think about it this way, is what we are to specifically deal with before we come to God's word. Then verse 20 is why we are to deal with it. And the first part of verse 21 is how we are to deal with it. Verse 19, what would it specifically deal with? Verse 20, why would it deal with it? And the first part of verse 21 is how would it deal with it? But first, have a look with me, the priority of listening. Have a look with me, verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Notice those words there, take note of this, or or it can be translated, this you know. And it could either connect to verse 18 or it could refer to what follows in verse 19 through to verse 21. And either way, it doesn't matter because it connects both. You should know these, both of these things. Either verse 18, the word that gives you life by the Spirit, or the word which you were to receive with patient, meek submission. But James is saying here, take note of this. You should know this. And if you don't, there's a problem. There's a problem. 
Regeneration, verse 18 that we looked at, and I just mentioned, regeneration from God produces a hatred for sin and a love for the word of God. Hate, regeneration from, by God produces a hatred for sin and a love for the word of God. So that's why he says, take note of this. What does it say? Take note of this. Everyone. Everyone. Have a look at the next word. Everyone. So it's not that, that you know, it's receiving the word of God rightly is for the, you know, super spiritual maybe. And it's not only, you know, if you're past a certain age or maybe once you're an adult. So if you're a kid here, everyone. Everyone. And it's not as if you, once you reach a certain age, that you progress beyond receiving the word. It says everyone. No matter who you are, take note of this. This you should know. It is for all God's people. Well, what's everyone to do? Next words. It says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Proverbs chapter 10 verses 18 to 21 says this. And the book of Proverbs, if you read it, you can't help but notice it's all about speaking and listening and fools and wise and how those things are often related. Proverbs 10 verses 18 to 21. He who covers up hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads a bad report is a fool. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who holds back his lips has insight. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but ignorant fools die for lack of heart and wisdom. So you notice the tongue of the wicked what does it say? He covers up his hatred with lies. He spreads a bad report. He speaks too much. He speaks worthless things and he speaks foolishness. That's what a fool does. There are many words with a fool. But what about the tongue of the righteous? He holds back his words. He speaks valuable words and he feeds many with wisdom. What about Proverbs 17 verses 27 28? He who holds back his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. Even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered understanding. Brethren, there is much wisdom in not only knowing what to say, but what not to say. In knowing when to speak, but knowing when not to speak. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2, this is speaking about the people as they would come up to worship God publicly. It says this, Ecclesiastes 5, it says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven, but you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So what's James getting at here? And the writer of Ecclesiastes and Solomon in the book of Proverbs, the emphasis is on listening, listening to the word of God, being quick to listen and slow to speak. And that's part of that is self-control, is it not? Self-control in restraining your words. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't speak and help others. Because notice what it says. If it says that you're quick to listen, it implies that someone else is speaking, is it not? If you're quick to listen, someone else is saying something to you. So it's not saying don't speak. 
ever. But what the scriptures are getting at here and what James is addressing is a proud, angry or hasty speaking and are not listening to the word of God and not, recept- not receiving correction from the word of God. That's what it's talking about. There's a rebellious attitude behind that, being quick to listen, uh, being quick to speak. There's a hastiness of speech. There's an impatience there behind the speech. Do you know that person who is impatient and unwilling to listen? Do you know that person who is unwilling to accept a biblical rebuke or correction? Is that you? Is that me? And brethren, when I was preparing this, I thought of how many times I've been quick to speak and slow to listen. And how many times I'm sure you've come to me with things of correction or things that I should be changing or things I shouldn't have said or things that I, things that I should be saying. And I've been defensive and impatient. And if, for any of that, I'm sorry. Forgive me. But how often, brethren... How often are we too hasty with our words and unwilling to accept rebuke? No, we must, yes, brethren, we must encourage, admonish one another, correct one another, build each other up with our words. We must speak. But when we are on the receiving end, we are not to quickly lash back. We're not to quickly say and defend, say, it wasn't me. No, no. Like, it couldn't be me. How often there's a proud heart in there and I'm willing to accept rebuke. When someone admonishes you or corrects you, what's your first response? Well, what's your first response? Is it to suddenly preach a three-point sermon on why you're not at fault? And you exegete why you're actually in the right? And look, brethren, you might be in the right. But again, we should be Slow to speak and quick to listen. And brethren, if we know our own hearts, we'll, and even I remember Joel saying this recently, they don't know the half of our sin. They don't know, they don't know even the least amount of our sin. And so we must be slow to speak. Take in what they say, and they may be wrong, but how we respond to what they're saying makes all the difference God is always calling his people to respond to his word. And that often comes through the counsel of others. And we should be counseling one another. Psalm 81 verses 11 to 13 says this. God says, but my people did not listen to my voice. And Israel was not willing to obey me. So I released them over to the stubbornness of their heart, that they would walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in, his, uh, walk in my ways. This is what God says to his people, that they weren't willing to listen. And notice he connects their listening and obeying. They go hand in hand, right listening and right obeying. And so that's what God is saying to you this morning. Are you willing to listen to his word? Are you willing to receive his word? And even as you go home and you look at the word of God today on the Lord's day, as you keep pouring over God's word and you keep meditating on the truths of God's word, are you willing to listen? Or are you willing to launch a defense to God? 
of why you don't, you shouldn't be corrected by God's word. Listen to God and walk in his ways. Now, what's, what's sometimes connected with someone who is the opposite of what James is saying in someone who's quick to speak and slow to listen? Well, often it's connected with anger, and that's what James gets with next. And so we see not only the, the priority of listening, but the danger of anger. Have a look in the verse 19. <clears throat> Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How much of our anger is that which flares up quickly? How much anger is that which flares up quickly? Does your anger flare up? At the smallest little poke by someone else? Does it flare up like this? Are you like a snake that's slightly provoked and suddenly when it's just slightly disturbed, it strikes once, twice, three times? And though the snake itself was disturbed just a little bit, it might have been just brushed as you were walking through the bush. The person who brushed that snake receives a much worse venom, much worse result than the snake did by far. The other person, when you strike back with your words, the other person is left with the venom and poison of your angry response. That's what James is getting at here. We must become slow to anger. We must be slow to be angry. Now, you may think of this question, is it okay to be angry? Is it ever okay to be angry? Because we read about God getting angry. We read about other times in God's word where anger is, seems to be okay. But then there are other times where anger is not okay. What's the difference? And so I want to take you, there's a just anger and there's an unjust anger. And I want to take you through what makes anger just and unjust. And if we can understand that, that will help us when we come to God's word and as we deal with each other, the anger that we should not have towards each other. But have a look at verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. It starts with the word for, connecting it to verse 19. Why must we be slow to anger? <clears throat> for, verse 20, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So this, there's an unjust anger, and that's called man's anger, or the anger of man. And the verse 20 literally reads, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there, there's an anger that belongs to man, and that doesn't produce the righteousness that comes from God. They're incompatible. Man's anger, the natural anger that comes from man. Titus 3 verse 3 says, For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That marks the unbeliever. That marks their life that they are hateful and they're hating each other. But what are some examples of unjust anger in the Bible? Let's take you back to the very first example of anger in the Bible. Do you know who it is? It's Cain. It's Cain. Genesis 4 says this. But for Cain, right, so God has accepted Abel's offering, but Cain's was not accepted. And that's where we come into Genesis 4, verse 5 to 8. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell 
Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fell, fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Brethren, that's an example of unjust anger. What about in the book of Jonah? And we'll be going into why that's unjust anger. Jonah 4. When God has just spared thousands and thousands of people. And yet Jonah is sitting there fuming. God has shown mercy to sinners and he doesn't like it one bit. And that's why he didn't go to them to begin with. When God called him to go to Nineveh. Because he hated the fact that God would potentially show mercy. And in Jonah to, to, to people that, that, that were Jonah's enemies. And in Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 and 4 it says, But this was a great evil to Jonah and he became angry. And Yahweh said, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? Notice there that what God did, it says, but this, right, speaking of what God did, this was a great evil to Jonah. He was angry at God. For God to show mercy in Jonah's eyes to Jonah's enemies, that was evil. What extreme examples of just anger? Well, Mark 3 verse 5, this is speaking of Christ. And by the way, hint, whenever it speaks of Christ or God in the Bible and he's angry, it's always going to be a just anger. But Mark 3 verse 5, And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, this is as Jesus looks out on the Pharisees and, and, and the leaders of Israel, grieved at their hardness of heart, right? he looked around them with anger, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus was angry at them. Or in John 2. And in other passages, it talks about Christ clearing the temple. And he didn't just go into the temple and go, eh, could you just maybe move your stuff maybe just a little bit out there? Can you, can you please pack up your stuff? Like, I'll, I'll help you pack up. No. He got a whip and he drove them out. He overturned the tables of all the money changers and the merchants. <clears throat> he was angry. It says, zeal for your house. Speaking of Christ, zeal for your house consumes me. That's anger. That's an angry zeal. We're in Judges 2 verses 13 to 14. Talking about Israel, it says, So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. God's anger burned against his sinful people. God is angry. Righteously angry. Psalm 5. This, this truth is brought out again and again in Scripture. That God hates the wicked. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. <clears throat> In 
And if you are here this morning and you are outside of Christ, if you're not a Christian, this is the Bible's condemnation and charge against you is that God hates you. I'm not mincing my words here. The Bible doesn't mince its words. God is angry at you for your sin. It's not that just God hates your sin and he loves you and you're okay. If that's the case, why doesn't God just send your sin to hell and not you? Well, no, the Bible's clear witness is that if you're outside of Christ, he's angry with you. Your sin offends him. Your sin is disgusting to him. And Joel mentioned this in his Good Friday sermon, if you were here. In Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men. That's why God is angry, because of your sin. And you know what happened on the cross? God's wrath, this wrath for sin that God has against sinners and sin, was poured out on Christ on the cross. And if you're here this morning and if, if, you're, if you're not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're outside of Christ, then understanding that God hates you, you will understand how God treated his son on the cross. As if Christ has sinned every single one of those sins because he poured out his wrath on his own son, his own, his own beloved son, and the only way that you can ever be right with God is through Jesus Christ. Because you're either, God's wrath has to be paid out on sin. It's either going to be on you or it's going to be on his dear son. And the only way to be justified in God's sight, to be declared righteous in his sight, is through the perfect law keeping of his son as he obeyed God in every way and as he suffered for the penalty of the law on the cross. In your place, if you trust in him. Because the Bible says that God is slow to anger. But there is, a, there is a day coming when he will not hold back his anger. God is so, so slow to anger. So if you're here this morning and you are outside of Christ and you have not trusted in Christ, you've not believed in Christ alone for your salvation... Trust in him. And let me tell you, you will go from being, with having God angry at you, to understanding the love of God. And this morning, God's love is held out in the gospel. And it's there for you if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, you will have an assurance of God's love poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And you will have God's love all because you're in his dear beloved son. But what makes, what makes anger unrighteous? What makes anger unrighteous? Because it's important that we understand we've seen examples of unrighteous anger and examples of just anger. But, but what makes anger righteous or the anger of man in verse 20? Well, first is if the grounds for that anger are not just... Matthew 5.22 says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So if you're angry with someone without a cause, 
So if the grounds are not just, then your anger is unjust. Well, what else makes anger unrighteous? Well, if sin is the cause of your anger, for example, pride. Or if this anger is disproportionate to the fault. For example, if someone drops something and we explode. Sometimes we realize that something, something, someone says something that they don't mean badly. And we, our anger just goes off the charts. It's unjust anger. There's no self-control there. Or when we are led by it, as if anger is, a, you know, is the master and, and we're the slave following along behind. When we're led by it, and if it is too often. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says, Do not be eager in your hearts to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. That word resides there means that anger sets up home. It sits down, it kicks up, it kicks up its feet, and is happy to dwell there. In the hearts of fools. That's something else that makes anger unjust or unrighteous. Or when it's unrestrained. And that was related to before when it's disproportionate to the fault. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without a wall is a man without restraint over his spirit. There's no self-control in your anger. Or anger can be unjust if it's not dealt with and it goes too far. And sometimes you've found this, you've been angry and, you, and it's kind of, it's a just anger, but then you, you let it simmer, you don't deal with it. And it just simmers away and guess what it produces? Bitterness. Bitterness against the person. Revenge. You want to you get them back, you want to say something back. And you might not say something at the time, but later on you just slander them behind their back or to their face. So unjust anger is one that's not dealt with and goes too far. Ephesians 4.26 says... Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Implying that if you let the sun go down on your anger, you're sinning in your anger. Or when your, sin, when your anger rises too quickly, we call this impatience. Or when it results in sinful actions or speech. If you remember back in, in, Numbers, uh, in Numbers 20, when Israel was murmuring and grumbling, saying, we want water. What does Moses do? Do you remember? God says to go to the rock and to speak to it. What does Moses do? He goes to the rock. He then lashes out with his words at the people. And then he strikes the rock. So words and actions, sinful ones that result from his anger. He could have been angry Right? And justly so that they're, that they're murmuring against God. But what he does is he disobeys God. And he speaks, Psalm 106 says that he speaks rashly with his lips. But what makes anger righteous? Notice how there are lots of things that make anger unrighteous. Why? Because we're sinful. We're sinful. And so whenever we're angry, we always need to assess our anger. Is it good or is it bad? Have I gone, into ang have I gone too angry too quickly, too far? Am I letting my anger go without dealing with it? But what makes anger righteous? This is, verse 20 says, the anger of man or man's anger. This is God's anger, the kind of anger that is from God. A good anger. Well, what's, what's the first thing that makes anger righteous is when it is at sin, i.e. it has just grounds. 
Acts 17, 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. His spirit was being provoked within him. He was angry. He was provoked. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. Solomon says, Let me tell you, brethren, if you don't hate sin, that's sinful. If you see injustice and sin being done and you're not angry, that's a problem. Because God's angry at sin and we should be angry at the things God is. Thomas Watson says, anger is without sin when it is against sin. Anger is without sin when it is against sin. So there must be just grounds, i.e. at sin. But what else makes anger righteous? Well, when there is a good sorrow in it. When there is a good sorrow in it. Mark 3 verse 5, if you remember I read that before, it says Christ was grieved at the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. I'm paraphrasing here. He was grieved at their hardness of hearts in his anger. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11 says, this is Paul speaking to the church of Corinth after they've repented for their sin, at tolerating sin in the church. He says, for, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, right, that's anger. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. There's a godly sorrow in our anger against sin. There is a godly sorrow. What else makes anger righteous? Well, when the goal of our anger is the glory of God and the good of our neighbour. When it's the glory of God and the good of our neighbour is the goal of it. And lastly, when we are slow to anger, self-controlled, measured in our response, and when it's mixed with a love for the person. Notice how all these things are the opposite of what makes anger unjust and unrighteous. If you think about Christ, <clears throat> how patient was he? Again and again and again with his unbelieving apostles and disciples. Right? When they didn't believe the word that he said again and again, when he told them three times that he would, be, he would, he would go to die and suffer many things and on the third day rise again. They didn't believe him again and again. Instead, they were arguing about who was the greatest and can they sit at his left hand and his right Or the crowds with all their unbelief, just wanting to seek a sign, just wanting to have their fill of the loaves. How patient was Christ? And he grieved over them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Or when he was charged again and again and again by Pontius Pilate and by the Jews again and again. And as he hung on that cross, and they were saying, if you're the son of God, save yourself. How patient was our Lord in every way. In every way. It's funny, in, in, in Jonah 4, where Jonah is unrighteously angry, we see a contrast between God and Jonah. It says, But this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah, O Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore I went ahead and fled to Tarshish 
For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. He knew who God was, and he didn't want to be like God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. So brethren, are you slow to anger? Or are you quick to anger? Are you patient? Or are you impatient? And God asks you, as he did Jonah, in Jonah 4 verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have good reason to be angry? Well, what's the opposite of impatience and sinful anger? And we'll see this in verse 21. Humility, meekness. We'll see that in the second part of verse 21. But what is the, in verse 20, what is the, the righteous life that God, says, God desires? Well, Matthew Poole says this, Well, the end of the word in you is to work that righteousness which the word of God prescribes you. So the end of the word is, sorry, the end of the word in you is to work that righteousness which the word of God prescribes you. So what's the point of the word of God? Is that it would produce fruit in you. So what James is saying here is if you're harboring anger in your heart or if you're quick to anger and, and, and you're slow to listen and you're quick to speak, to make sure I did that in the reverse of the passage, it's not going to produce the righteousness of God. It's not going to produce the fruit that you want when you come to the word of God. God's word is to sanctify us. But if we come to it with sin, with sinful anger, it hinders the work of the word on our souls. And so do you attend upon the word of God with anger in your hearts? Maybe you've snapped at someone before you got here to the service. Often happens with kids. Deal with sinful anger before you think of worshipping God. Deal with sinful anger before you think of worshipping God. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 says, Paul says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. 1 Peter 2 verse 1 and 2, Therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He says, put aside this so that by it, you may go into salvation. There's a so that. And if you don't put it off, the so that's not going to happen. It's going to hinder your growth. And that word in 1 Peter 2, putting aside all malice, hypocrisy, envy, all slander, putting aside is actually used in verse 21. So let's have a look. Verse 21, first part. What does it say? Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. So we're to put off sin. We're to put off sin. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want you to get Paul's, um, James's logic here. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, we're to get rid of it. And here, the first part of verse 21, he expands it. It's not just anger that we have to get rid of. It's all sin. We're to get rid of it. How is it described? Moral filth. You need to see sin as disgusting. Because that's what sin is. It's disgusting. 
It's like you're clothed with, with, with filthy clothes covered in mud and filth and excrement. That's what it means here. Moral filth. It's detestable. It's, it's defiling. But this word putting aside or, or getting rid of is speaking of getting rid of clothes. Because that's the very image James is using here. Get rid of it. Stop doing it. What's, what's the next word? The evil, it says, that is so prevalent. Or the abundance of evil. The abundance of it. or that It's so prevalent. Not only are we to see the filthiness of our sin, we're to see the abundance and prevalence of our sin. We're to see the depths of our sin. So how do we cast it off? And, and if you've read the New Testament, you, you've seen different in, in, in Paul's epistles that he keeps talking about putting off and putting on. Do you remember that? Putting aside, putting on. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4. That in reference, Paul says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Brethren, put off your sin and put on righteousness. Put on Christ. Put on the things of God. Well, how do we put off sin? Well, firstly, we're to... Watch against sin in our hearts. If you're not recognizing that you have filthy clothes on, you can't take them off, can you? You're going to have no desire to take them off. So first, watch against sin in your hearts. But next, as I was saying, view them as disgusting and incompatible with holiness. Incompatible to receiving the word of God. And that's why Paul uses the words there, the moral filth. And the evil that is so prevalent. View them this way. And you have to view them in this way. Because if you don't, you're going to be content to live with them. And third, confess them to God and ask for his strength to cast them off. Away from you. By his grace. So, when you come before God in public worship, private worship... Worship as a family, as you gather around the word of God, as you pray. Ask the Lord to help you specifically to see the filthiness of your sin, to see the abundance of your sin, and ask him for grace to put it off, put it aside. And that's why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, even just as an example, 1 Corinthians 11, what is, why, do, why does Joel give the warning Again and again. And why does Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 give the warning to discern the body, to discern your own hearts before you come before the Lord's Supper? Because it's important that you confess your sin, you put the sin aside before you think about worshipping God. In your private worship in the mornings or even in the evenings, let's take the mornings. Have you grumbled about the earliness of your morning? Have you complained already? Spilt the milk? Stubbed your toe? Said something you shouldn't have. Gotten impatient. Lay it aside, brethren. Confess it to the Lord before you come to his word. What about family worship? 
when you're trying to gather your, your, your kids around and hey, come over here now. Stop, stop doing that. Stop playing with that. Stop speaking. It's not wrong to say come over here. It's not wrong to say stop speaking. But have we snapped at a child and then we think that we can lead effective family worship? I know I can tell you when I try and lead family worship and that's just happened, it's like the Lord's just, there's, there's like a, a thorn in my conscience just right there. And I have to ask the Lord for forgiveness. What about public worship? There are many sins. What about worldly thoughts that intrude? That happens so often, brethren. So we must put off all sin. Well, how must, and that's why Paul labors here, out of the three verses, the majority is what not to do. Because once we lay all that aside, guess what? Then it helps produce how we are to approach the word of God. How we are to approach the word of God. And we'll see here lastly, the call to receive the word of God with meekness. Have a look with me. Second part of verse 21. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. You see here the priority of meekness or humility. That word humble there, humbly. Can be probably better translated meekness or gentleness. And this idea of humility and meekness are very closely interrelated. But where humility is, is kind of the opposite of pride, meekness is a little bit more the opposite of anger. And just like anger and pride are so often together, so often meekness and humility, they go hand in hand. Matthew Henry said, Meekness towards God is the easy and quiet submission of the soul to God's whole will, according as he is pleased to make it known whether by his word or by his providence. It's talking about the, the things in our lives. So it's a quiet and easy submission of the soul to God's will. Whether it's the affairs of the life that he brings across our path, or whether it's the word of God as, as we're reading here. So the word of God is to be humbly accepted and received. We're to believe that it's true and we're to trust all that it says. And how do we do this? With meekness. With a submission of the soul to the Lord and his word. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. And you know, I'm sure you know well, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about that when you come before the word. If you want not to be opposed in that sense, but if you want the word of God to yield all its fruit to you, God gives grace to the humble. Psalm 25 verse 9 says, He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. If you ever read Isaiah 50, it's one of the servant songs about Christ, one of the prophecies of Christ. And we, we see so much of Christ's life in the, in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah. It's, it's beautiful. In Isaiah 50 verse 4, it says this of Christ. It says, he awakens, this is Christ speaking, the servant speaking. He awakens me morning by morning. This is speaking of Christ with his father. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. That's what Christ did with his father. He willingly listened. I mean, the New Testament said that he grew in wisdom. He, and this is, what, this is what it's talking about. With meekness, he received the word of God. And he had no sin to put aside. But still, with meekness, he humbly submitted himself to God's word. 
So we must put off our sin first and then put on righteousness. In this case, meekness when we come before God's word. And the putting off paves the way for putting on. Because what God commands, we must obey. What he promises, we must trust. When he corrects error in our thinking, we repent. When he convicts us of sin, we confess it. And meekness gives us a willingness to bear all the rebukes of our Lord. All of them. Whether it's, as this word is preached, whether it's someone maybe that we don't get along with, but they're actually speaking truth to us from God's word, whether it's even from the lips of a child when they show our hypocrisy, whatever it is, with meekness we're to receive the word of God. But lastly, we, I said, keep saying lastly, don't I? The saving word. This is, as Paul, Paul in his epistles would keep saying lastly, and then he would go on for, for a long time, but we'll be done in a few minutes. But lastly, how does it describe the word? It says, the word planted in you, which can save you. Because the word was planted in you as believers. If you're a believer, the word is planted in you by the Spirit. And verse 18 talks about how we're born again. And what happens when we're born again? The Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts and gives us the power to obey it and obey God. And so this is the word, and that's what it means, except the word planted in you. We have the word of God. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit who helps us to understand the word of God. But what, is it, what do those last words say? Which can save you. Not only does this word save us in our regeneration and in giving us new life so that we're, we believe in Christ and are declared righteous in his sight, but what it's getting at here is that the word is able to save us in the, in the sense that it continues the work that God is doing in us. It sanctifies us as we continue to receive it. Again and again, putting aside all sin and receiving it with meekness. So let's come before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, precious God. We pray that we would rightly come before your word always. Whatever situation we're in, whether it's at home or, 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 or dealing with others at church or, or whether it's by ourselves as we're reading your word as we're, or as we're listening to a sermon or whatever it is, Lord, we pray, please, Lord, help us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Help us to be slow to anger. Help us to put off every sin, Lord, that we know, to confess it to you and ask for grace, O oh Lord, not only put, to put off that sin, but for the meekness which we require to submit to your word. Oh Lord, make us meek men and women, ready to listen to your word and to obey it. Oh precious Lord, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that indeed, morning by morning, as he was awakened, he was ready to be, to be taught and to listen to your word. And we pray that we would, we would be that way too. That we would be like the Lord Jesus Christ, patient, slow to anger, meek, ready to hear your word. Oh, we thank you for your precious son. And we thank you for all these things in his name. Amen.